Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of our podcast. Today I share an insightful conversation I recently had with South Australia's Mental Health Commissioner, Chris Burns. He is an experienced advocate and strategic planner and is a former military officer and consultant in defence and international relations. He has a passion for improving services and ensuring people with lived experience of mental illness, their families and carers are central to the Commission's work and ongoing mental health reform. Commissioner Burns is taking a whole of person, whole of life, whole of community, and whole of government approach to the development of South Australia's mental health strategic plan. In leading this key task of the commission, his focus is firmly on strengthening the mental health and wellbeing of South Australians. Tune into this week's episode as Chris delves into the importance of building resilient, compassionate, and connected communities, as well as being proactive in our approach to mental health rather than waiting for the mine attack to occur. All right, welcome to Pebble in the Pond podcast. Today with me, I have the, the pleasure uh, of having the South Australian uh, Mental Health Commissioner, Chris Burns. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Great to be here. Oh, we appreciate your involvement, uh, not only in the conference, but in the podcast and being able to have the opportunity to chat to our listeners and, and, uh, and enlighten, or not enlighten, but inform everybody on what's been happening in South Australia uh, with regards to mental health. Before we get into that, if you just want to just give us a bit of a background with your professional sure. career, um, because it would really be interested in hearing about that. Sure. Um, I joined the Army at 16 as an apprentice and then did 30 plus years in the Army, um, getting out in 2007. Were you based in Adelaide? Uh, only for a couple of okay. years. Most of the time uh, all around Australia. Uh, did a number of assignments overseas, spent 12 months in the Middle East, uh, two years in the US. And my last three years was actually in the Philippines, which was tremendous. Um, and then we decided it was time to settle. Um, Defence is a young person's business. Mm. Uh, Adelaide was where our families were. Uh, so we came back from the Philippines to Adelaide. Um, and I pretty well went into the defence industry. Um, that was my currency. That was where my mindset was. Um, I spent about 10 years in defence industry um, which culminated in leading the Defence Industry Association here, so it's about 250 companies. Yeah. And led a national campaign to convince the government to build submarines and ships in, in Australia as opposed to let the contract go overseas. Um, but the thread through all of that, uh, Defence Service and then post-defence, was veterans and veterans' mental health. Um, Clearly, as a, as a military officer, I dealt with, with, with damaged individuals. But when I left the military, I, I, a lot of my mates were suffering quite severely. Mm. And, and I really didn't feel that they were, were getting well looked after. Um, so I put myself forward. Um, and it wasn't just my mates, it was their families, which actually struck me even further. Um, to that end, I, I volunteered to be a member of Legacy. Uh, which looks after the families of veterans. Um, this is post your service? Post okay. my service, once yeah. we established in Adelaide. Yeah. Very difficult to be part of those organisations when you're constantly travelling. Yeah. Whereas once we were stabilised here in Adelaide, you can get into the organisation and give back to the community. Um, but also got on the state government's Veterans Advisory Council um, and in fact at one point chaired the Veterans Health Advisory Council. Um, just to sell their message and to be a more of a contemporary veteran um, as opposed to those who are Vietnam, Korea, mm. World War II. 
Um, so it uh, came to an end of my time in defence industry and was looking for something different and then um, they advertised the job of mental health commissioner. Um, it's a new position, so it was to set up the commission. Um, and when I spoke to the minister, he said he didn't want another clinician. He mm. wanted someone with a strategic outlook who could look at it from a whole of community perspective. Um, but he also wanted a, a perspective that we looked at the whole 100% of the population, not just those who are experiencing distress or illness. Um, and so that appealed to me. Um, so uh, came in, established the commission back in 2016, and my first role was to write a, a mental health strategic plan for South Australia. Yep. And um, if you like, strategic plans uh, are what I've been very good at in the military and in the defence industry. Um, and in, in, a case, in 18 months, we went out and consulted over 2,000 South Australians, uh, found out what their, their issues were and then developed a strategic plan. Um, when I came into the job, uh, when you read the papers, it was all about mentally ill people being spending too long in emergency departments, that there wasn't enough beds for them in the hospitals and that they couldn't get appointments with psychiatrists. And it just struck me that we were looking at the wrong end of the spectrum, that why were we waiting for people to become unwell? Um, why weren't we trying to stop people becoming unwell? Um, so in developing the strategic plan, when we went out and spoke to South Australians, I expected to hear from them, too long in emergency, can't get an appointment, not enough beds. But what South Australians told us was, uh, we're lonely. Mm. We've lost our sense of community. There's too much stigma and too much discrimination around mental illness. We won't talk about it. We won't educate people about it. Um, and we're not focusing on how to stop people becoming unwell. And that was statewide, not just specifically Absolutely. in the rural or this is, yeah, this is statewide. Statewide, mm. but the message was strongest in the country, in the yeah. rural and remote sectors. Um, we went to one town and we set up a pop-up stall in the, outside the main uh, supermarket. And one gentleman came up and said, look, I haven't got anything to say about mental health, but I haven't spoken to an adult for 13 days, so I just wanted a chance to have a chat. Is that right? And that was someone who'd come in off the farm into town and just wanted a chat. Mm. And and that's what we've lost, that whole having a chat. Connection. And then getting rid of the stigma so people will talk about their mental health. Mm. And, you know, men won't look each other in the eyes and talk about suicide or being mentally unwell. They'll stand side by side in a pub or on a bowling green mm. and talk about other issues around it, but they won't talk about mental health and wellbeing. Um, which drove us to then write the strategic plan around a vision that said at the core of everything, we have to have a resilient, compassionate and connected community. And if we have that, then we'll have the groundwork for good mental health and wellbeing in our community. So that drove us then to focus on um, what, are, what are the social determinants that drive a person's wellbeing? And it came down to quite simply having a strong family and a community around you was key. Um, having a job and knowing where your next paycheck was coming from. Most importantly, having a roof over your head. Mm. You know, and if you don't have a roof over your head, if you don't know where you're going to sleep tonight, if you don't know where you're going to have dinner tonight, you, your mental health and wellbeing, as well as your physical health and wellbeing, will be significantly impacted. And so um, that led us to focus on how do we impact the social determinants to ensure that people don't become unwell rather than focusing all our money and finance and effort on those who have become unwell and uh, how do we reduce the numbers. Um, I, I guess the other critical thing that became really apparent to us was we had to focus on young people. Um, and to, to bore with statistics, but almost half of us, 45% of us, will experience a diagnosable mental illness in our life. Um, yeah. and, and that's not just a unique thing for Australia, that's first world countries. Um, the, the scary part of that is uh, for half of those people who do 
experience a diagnosable mental illness, it will onset between the ages of 11 and 14. For 75%, that mental illness will onset before the age of 24. Mm. So if we're not focusing on preconception through the age of 24 and, and giving maximum support in our community to that, area, that age group, we've just missed the opportunity to stop people becoming unwell. Yeah. And so um, a lot of emphasis, the first project we did as a commission was based on uh, new and expectant dads and supporting them through SMS. Um, you know, how do we build resilience in kids while they're going to school uh, and then flowing down there from to the workplace? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I sort of I read the strategic plan. This was in 2017 it was developed right, and yeah. it's a five year Five year plan, plan yeah. twenty twenty two, right? Correct. So, uh, so you were in you were enrolled in this position uh, of the South Australian Mental Health Commissioner in two thousand fifteen, was it? Uh, I was recruited. I took over on the fourth of July two thousand and sixteen, okay. so mid two thousand and sixteen. And and then so you and with your background and, and it obviously makes complete sense is to get out there and let's really talk to the people to see well where are we missing what what's yeah. what's not working yeah. And so you did that and you went out there and you, you went to, and we're not just talking in the cities, obviously metropolitan no. areas, you went out to rural and remote, hard to get to communities. Yes, um, and, and really, because obviously everybody talks about the bottom up approach and, and getting communities and, and seeing, having that input, which is really important. How do you feel like, I mean, it's one of the strengths that you've done with developing the strategy that, that you have with, um, with your findings, but how do you feel that you've done with, I mean, it's, because community obviously is really important, but how, how do you feel like, is that one of the things you really think that you nailed and you said, we've done differently or we've done actually meaningfully? Yeah. Because it's one thing to say it and it's another thing to do it. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that and that community uh, involvement. Mm. The first thing I learned uh, when we started the consultation process uh, was everyone said, we're sick of being consulted. Mm. We're really sick of you coming out and asking us questions and not listening to us. Or not doing anything. Not doing anything yeah. about it. Um, and they referred to being consult told. Mm. So um, we people would go out and say, what's the issues? Um, not take any attention to what the issues were and then go back to them and say, okay, this is how we're going to fix your problem for you. Um, so we were very focused that everyone we spoke to, we kept their contact details. We did the consultation. We did around South Australia and, and did focus a lot on rural and remote pop-up stalls, sports clubs, one-on-ones, radio interviews, any way we could communicate with people, uh, we did. Um, and at the end of that, we wrote a, a discussion paper in simple, plain language mm. that said, we've been out and talked to you. We think we heard you say this, and that means this. Is that correct? And so we took that back out to all those 2,000-plus people and said, did we get it right or wrong? 500 people came back and said, no, I actually meant this and you should put more emphasis on that. And no, that's not what I meant when I said this. Mm. Uh, so at the end of that, we had a, we felt we'd listened and we knew. Because you re-engaged them exactly. to double check. And demonstrated that we, yeah. we actually had listened. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in the development of the plan, we kept going back to them. And saying we're thinking that you're you you want more of this is that right yes no yes no and and my guiding um, direction to my team was it's not for us to own the plan it's for every south australian to own the plan because if they don't own the plan and feel themselves in it mm. then they'll it will never work because you talk about that whole approach right yep. the holistic approach government community uh, businesses everyone's got to be on board this and getting that buy-in is critical. Absolutely. And so it makes sense, obviously, to have them as part of the, the process because obviously they get some ownership with that. Absolutely. So um, so one of the things I really, really resonated with me when you said, are we going to run out of money or, we, or, or workforce first? Yeah. When you look at the clinical workforce, mental health clinical workforce, um, and as I said in my chat today, um, we've, we've got over 240 psychiatrists in South Australia. But the number who live outside Adelaide City and work outside Adelaide City, I, I can count on one hand. 
And so mm-hmm. um, you, you can invest as much as you like in the workforce. The demand is, will, will always be there. And the less you invest in promotion, prevention, and early intervention, the larger the workforce you've got to have at the acute end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you draw out, extrapolate out the numbers of population growth uh, and what would, the trends we're seeing now, and trends are appearances in emergency departments, treatments, what have you. Um, we will run it. I can't work it out. It's either we're going to run out of money, taxpayers' dollars to pay for it, mm. or we're just going to run out of people qualified to be mental health um, clinicians. Mm. And, um, and and that's everything from psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, uh, through to occupational therapists, yep. social workers. So we have to find an alternative. And, and this is where you then mention, obviously, developing the professional peer workforce. Correction, correction. And and tell me about the role of peer workers that you see and the future that you think they can have to impact mental health. So before I came into this job, no one, I'd never heard of a peer worker or lived experience. And um, it was explained to me very, very eloquently that the, the way to think of a peer worker is imagine a young 16-year-old girl goes to her 30-year-old male single GP um, and he says, you're pregnant and this is how your pregnancy is going to go and this is how life for you as a mother is going to be into the future. And then that 16-year-old girl walks out of the waiting room and there's a mother of four who says, sit down here. Um, I have had four children. This is my experience. This is what pregnancy is going to be like for you. This is what life is going to be like for you. And oh, by the way, I'm going to walk the journey with you. That's a peer worker. Mm-hmm. Is that someone who has that lived experience, who can empathise with and can sit down and say, I've been there, I know what you're going through, let's go through this together. Um, and, and throughout the world, peer workers have demonstrated their true value. And, um, and that can be from crisis response to crisis care to... Every aspect of our community uh, can be a peer worker. So I talked about uh, positive psychology and resilience training in schools. Uh, At the moment, it's it's delivered by teachers. I don't think teachers should deliver that. Teachers should teach. Peer workers should go into schools and sit down with kids and say, when I was your age, I I went through this too. But this is the journey you're going to go down, and I'm going to go down that journey with you, and I'll be here to help you on your recovery pathway. Um, the issue that I raised uh, during my presentation is we say we have peer workers, but the only criteria is they put their hand up and say, I've got lived experience. And in South Australia, they might have done an 18-month certificate four course at TAFE. Um, that's not a professional. So they're employed, they're uh, seen as outside the system, they're not integrated, they're normally casual work, their salary is atrocious, um, and they're just not accepted by clinicians. A professional peer worker is someone who has been screened to be appropriate, uh, has been selected based on a job and person description, um, has been trained, uh, not just induction, but initial and through career training. They're supervised from the outset. Um, they have the opportunity to develop their own leadership skills. They have a career pathway. Um, I feel that they need to have accreditation that might be annual, biannual, uh, biennial. Um, and then that accreditation would legitimise them in, and allow them to be integrated into the health system. And uh, me, for me, the ultimate proof that uh, we have a uh, integrated professional peer workforce is when their hours can be billed against Medicare. Mm. And so um, I think that's the alternative or augmented workforce that, yeah. that is non-clinical based. that will really fill that gap between clinical and volunteers. Because it's not like, uh, and I think what you said is spot on. And I think I've never heard, you know, that analogy and and that definition before. So I think that that is really, really important. And I couldn't agree more with the role that they should be playing moving forward. Because people resonate with these sort, you know, with, with peer workers, people lived experience. And even obviously in the military or in police, you know, people experience... PTSD or, or any mental ill health um, yeah. challenges that they're, they're probably more unlikely to go to seek professional help, exactly. or especially in rural and remote communities where you, yeah. where everyone you know is in town yeah. and they see your car parked yeah. at the spot and they 
they have that stigma. Yeah. Um, whilst we all are hopeful and, and we're all open to the fact that the awareness around stigma is getting better, but it's yeah. still largely there in, in essence. Yeah. Um, but it it, does, it it provides an opportunity for them to to meet up with somebody that's been through it, Absolutely. like you said, and empathises with them. And that definition you said, or the, or the analogy with the with the sixteen year old mother, mm. it's, it's really interesting, and, and I mm. think it's spot on. Tell me about because um, on one hand, obviously we're going to prevent it, so we we've obviously identified that. Well, hang on, we can actually uh, with our resources, if we put a lot more into the uh, early intervention prevention side of things it will also help us at the other end. But equally, I guess we're still, is there still bottlenecks? Is there still, is it still a big issue with the people that are in the top end of the spectrum with mental health challenges? Um, I, I in think, South Australia? I think there is, I can only talk from a South Australian perspective and and I talked today about the, the health and wellbeing ecosystem and that, Initially, I was trying to map it as a system, and I took a more military approach to a system that's a, an organised, structured, disciplined uh, system. And, and what I found is that it's not a system, it's an ecosystem. It evolves. But what that means is that you have duplication of effort um, and you have barriers, uh, be it between levels of government, commonwealth, state, local, uh, and, in, and in developing the plan and travelling around, I saw so much duplication, but so many gaps. Um, and, and people just don't know what services are there. Mm. Um, they're confused by what services are there, and then they don't know how to access it. Um, and then there's inconsistency of delivery of access. So classic example was, uh, again, in the country, um, where the people said to us, look, we understand we can't have our own psychiatrist. We're too small a community. We understand that. Um, and that you're going to fly a psychiatrist in every two weeks. And, and that's fine. We can work with that. Could you just do us a favour and send the same one? Because mm. every two weeks we have to tell our story all over again, yeah. different perspective, and suddenly it's a different prescription. Mm. And so we never have that continuity of service, that stability of service. And in the interim, when we do hit a crisis, there's no one there to help us when we need it. Mm. Um, so we, we've got to find the way to connect the services so that there is no duplication, that the gaps are covered, that people are aware of the services that are there and those services are 24-7 available um, and that there's, there is no gaps. Mm. That's, that's a basic function. That's just what, what we need to do is change the culture. And I said this in there is it's about changing the culture where we collaborate and we don't have these power plays. Everyone works together and we, we drive for the efficiency and the best outcomes uh, rather than everyone having their own fiefdoms and no one crossing over those barriers. Yeah, definitely. And culture and leadership is something you touched on. Absolutely. And I, and I want to delve into that as well a little bit deeper. If we go back to it, you mentioned before the SMS for Dads. Do you just, I, mean, I thought that was an amazing initiative and, yeah. and the first I heard of it. Do you just want to briefly explain sure. what that was? Sure. So what we, uh, as I said, is we've got to start preconception. And what we came across was this research called SMS for Dads. And um, the essence of it is it recognises that there is a lot of support for expectant and new mums and there's a lot of support for the babies, but the dads feel isolated. They don't feel that they're part of the, the, the whole bonding uh, and the experience of pregnancy and early early childhood. Um, and they feel they're the hunter and gatherer that's got to go out and, and earn the income whilst the mum stays at home and has the baby. Um, and that causes very high levels of anxiety and depression in expectant new dads, you know, quite high levels. Um, so the idea of the SMS for dads was using a modern medium of SMS every week uh, a dad, sorry, a dad registered from the outset, and from week 20 of pregnancy, every week they received three SMS messages that came from the perspective of the baby, the mother, or just to inform them about that point of the. the and I gave the example in there at week 21, the first, one of the first, first texts the dad gets is, Hey, dad, just open my eyes down here. Not a lot to see. Can't wait to see you. Mm. If you want to know more about this stage of my development, go to this website. If you've got any questions, go to here. And then throughout 
from week 20 of pregnancy to six months post birth, they get those three text messages every week. Mm. Another example was near the end of the pregnancy, there's a message that comes that says, uh, hey, your, your partner's really uh, at the end of the pregnancy now. Uh, she's tired, she's exhausted, she needs your help and she needs your encouragement. So go, go home tonight and tell her she's doing a great job and just do something special for her. Mm. And in the feedback we got from one mother, she said he came home and he told me what a fantastic job I've been doing and how good I am. And then he went and cleaned, cleaned the kitchen. So I got up and I went to him and I said, you got another one of those bloody messages, didn't you? Because he's never told me I've, I've, uh, anything good about what I'm doing and he's never been in the kitchen. Yeah. So if that was just another way of, of yeah. building that bond and that relationship. Yeah. The other important part of SMS for dads was every three weeks the dads got a message that said, hey, how are you travelling? Mm. And they had five options. They could say, great, good, okay, not so good, really bad. If they said not really, if they said really bad, we had a 24-7 service that reached straight out to them. Mm. If they said not so good, we had another service that reached out within three days. So we were handling that, that anxiety and depression. Mm. In, and in the case of the 24-7 service, of the 247 dads we did in the, had in the project, um, six required that 24-7 service. So that's six families we hopefully yeah. have impacted. That's amazing. My challenge is that everything came out positive. It is a good program. But how do I continue that program? And you can't have the expectation that the state government will just pay, you yeah. know, a half a million dollars for four years of running a program. Um, Is that I, how long that went for? Four years? No, no, we only did twelve months okay. uh, study yeah. project. Um, but our, our calculations are each four years. So you work in government funding four year forward yeah. estimates. That would be a half a million dollar expenditure. Yeah, um, and that's to have that twenty four seven and the reach out. So my belief is how can I go to people like Telstra and Optus and say, here's an opportunity for you to contribute to your future workforce yeah. and in some cases your existing workforce mm. um, to make their mental health and wellbeing. They're going to use your platforms, they're going to use your networks. Yeah. Um, this is an ideal opportunity for you to contribute mm. um, because that then gets that whole of community approach where don't rely on the government, don't rely on the medical system, yeah. We as a whole community have to contribute. And what a great initiative. And, and obviously with everything being so positive from the, the pilot, I mean, it's it's uh, it gives a great case for this to keep going, and not only within South Australia, but like you said, nationally. Nationally. Be brilliant. Uh, I mean, what a great concept. That then, you went then to school, so yep. resilience in schools. So, yes. so tell us about that. Okay. Um, I, I've been to visit a number of schools and they have various positive psychology, resiliency programs. Um, and these are programs where they sit down with the kids and they say, life isn't going to be a bed of roses. You are going to have challenges in life. And let's talk about how you deal with challenges as an individual. Um, what your response is, how you, how you self-manage your own mental health and wellbeing. What, what are the triggers that will get you upset uh, and, and how you handle those things. It also encourages them to set themselves objectives in life. So set yourself an objective for today, this week, this month, this year, for life. Um, and it's just getting them ready for the grown-up world and, and growing their resiliency. Uh, and we've spoken to kids who just said, you know, now when I go home and my big brother tries to pick a fight on me, I know to go to my bedroom and read a book and not to, not to get in the fight. Um, and I have my objectives going forward. I know where I want to be in the future and I know I can change those objectives. Um, and it other also teaches them how to be community members and how to help each other, how to recognise signs in others, how to talk to others about their mental health and wellbeing. Um, so if you go, and I'm not being classist here, if you go to a private school, there, there's almost a guarantee you're going to have a very, very good, expensive positive psychology resiliency program in place. Um, if you go to a public school, it'll rely on the goodwill of the teachers mm -hmm. and, and the, the principals finding money in their budget to pay for it. Um, my belief is resiliency and positive psychology should be a mandatory element of the curriculum, but don't put further burden on the teachers 
this is an ideal opportunity for professional peer workers to go in and deliver the training, to, to monitor their performance and even to do counselling. There's a very high element, so about 30% of those who experience resiliency and positive psychology training require a level of ongoing counselling. Um, so you have to be able to deliver yeah. that too as part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, why should the government pay for that? This is going to benefit employers later on. Why don't local companies contribute money to pay for that resiliency program with their school kids? Yeah, and as you mentioned before, 75% of diagnosable mental illness onset before the age of 24. So, I mean, it makes sense that you're looking at those early years to yeah. say, well, where are the opportunities? Yeah. Uh, and and schools would, would, would definitely be a big part of that. Hmm. Do you also see the role of parenting yep. being really critical as well? With that? Absolutely. And that's that's the preconception. That's the, yeah. the SMS for dads is how do we build that bond and that relationship between the mother, the father and the child? Um, from the very, very outset before the baby's born. And as I said, 90% um, of brain development occurs in the first five years of life. That's before they go to school. So the opportunity to, to influence and guide the development of a human being's brain is, is in the hands of the parents in that first five years, the immediate family and the community. So how do we get community support new parents? Uh, and what are we doing in that preconception area to help people understand this is what they're going to be coming into and this is how to prepare them that goes back to their resiliency training and even even better identifying at early intervention as we're saying at that point because at that point if we can because the cost to to them to the, to their families to the, the system moving forward if we don't identify it at that absolutely. age is really really crucial isn't absolutely it? yeah I mean, ultimately, you want a very small mental health system. Mm. So very few people requiring that acute care. Mm. Um, you know, everything we learn is that a hospital, an emergency department and an ambulance is the worst place for someone with mental illness to be. The best place for them to be is in their community uh, w without the hyperactivity around it, um, but with their community and their family. And that's where they settle and stabilise far better. Their recovery is much quicker. Um, and they, they can be back in the community very, very fast. Um, but if we invest in those early years, we're investing in, in our prosperity as a, as a, as a nation mm. and we will grow our mental wealth by making that wise upfront investment. And you talk about mental wealth and what does that, what does that mean for you? Um, as I highlighted, we, 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 it costs us $10 billion a year in Australia to manage mental health and wellbeing particularly in the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, the highest percentage of that is six billion, which goes in what's called presentees. And, and I used the example of a, um, a young 25-year-old technician who's working on a submarine combat system here in Adelaide, and his wife's at home with postnatal depression. His mind is not on that combat system, mm -hmm. it's on his wife. Um, so how uh, do we make a safe workplace where that individual can come to work and go to his boss that day and say, hey, this is where I'm at. And then the boss has got the knowledge, the understanding, the training to turn around and say, okay, mate, fully understand. This is how we're going to manage your situation. It will be of no detriment to you. We fully understand. We all experience this um, because they will get more out of that guy in productivity as a consequence of that. His loyalty, his commitment, his productivity will all grow. And I'm glad you brought that up, the workplace mental health and the role that businesses, employers uh, and employees can also take to to promote mental health and wellbeing, but also identify and hopefully prevent further mental illness. Do you think that starts with the mental health first aid in the workplace? Is that the, is that the foundation to begin with? Um, that, the mental health first aid is a tool. Yeah. Uh, it's an enabler. Um, what we've got to do is change the culture in the workplace, and that's addressing the stigma and discrimination. The way you change culture is through leadership, and leadership's got to come from the very, very top, where the, the leadership has to demonstrate that it wants a safe, mentally healthy workplace. Mm. Um, and that's something, for instance, I do in my own workplace. Yeah. I, I have a, a mental health and wellbeing um, committee, and they come up with a wellbeing program. Now, I don't tell them what to do, I support whatever they want to do. Yeah. They come back and tell me these are the things that we would like to do. This is what 
enhances our well-being. So mental health first aid is one obvious. Um, a not so obvious example was that they said we're all about community connection, but we don't get time to connect with our community. Um, so through some extensive negotiation, I was able to get two extra days of leave, which is difficult in the public service, wow. um, which is called community connection leave. Fully paid for leave, doesn't come off their recreational or any other leave, um, and they are able to go out and do what makes them feel good in community. And some of them go to the RSPA, RSPCA and deal with animals. Me, I go to veterans' families. Mm. Um, others go and wrap presents at Christmas in the Adelaide Mall for a charity. It's what, all they've got to do is take a photo yeah. that we can use in a newsletter that says, hey, this is how X connects with their community. Mm. This is what makes them feel good. This is what enhances their well-being. And what a great example of actually just, you know, walking the talk Yeah. Uh, because you're right. I mean, you're advocating, you're out there pounding the drums to say, hey, this is what we need to do. Mm. But then you're also doing it yourself, which is which is all about integrity. Mm. Um, so that, that's really, uh, really encouraging and great to hear. But I get that two days of productivity back off them fourfold. Yeah. Because they, they committed. Yeah. And, and, and they also were part of... The plan, and, the, and and they saw that you took action based on what they were telling. Exactly right. So they're, they're a believer. Yeah. So so if we look at the workplace, then because this is across every industry, and workplaces in in every industry need to take ownership. Yep. And, and need to put their hand up and say, well, we don't want that. We no longer tolerate a culture of, um, you know, stigma around mental health of not encouraging workplace health and well-being. So. So do you see workplaces as being an integral part of prevention, but also is there also, are you also looking at as a way to better identify people that are having challenges with mental ill health? Absolutely. Um, The first and foremost is there is a law that says every employer is as obliged to maintain a mentally healthy workplace as they are a physically healthy workplace. Now, it's the same law. They can be taken to jail and court under the same rules if they don't um, mitigate any risks and ensure they have a mentally healthy workplace. That's the law. Who wants? To, I don't want to wave the stick. I want to make leaders realise that if they invest in the mental health and well-being of their workforce, they will get improved productivity. In fact, PricewaterhouseCoopers did a study that says for every dollar you invest in mental health and well-being of your workforce, you'll get $2.30 back. Um, but... What they're also doing is contributing to society, the broader community. They're making our, our whole community, our world, a better place for their investment. Um, so I, I talk about the Mental Health First Aid course and how we've had it introduced into the South Australian Public Service as a mandatory requirement. What I had to stop of was... Of every employee? Uh, no, oh, okay. of the Just, state government. Okay. In every state government agency now, there must be equal number of mental health first aiders as there are physical first aiders. Wow. And that's now mandatory in all South Australian government agencies. Um, so the state government had to pay for 2,500 public servants to be trained in mental health, well, uh, mental health first aid, sorry. Now, the important thing was well, I had to discourage all the managers going and putting themselves on the course. It's good for managers to have the awareness. A mental health first aid has got to be on the work floor. Mm. They've got to be trusted. They've got to empathise. They've got to be able to walk around the work floor and talk to the workers and recognise when things might not be great for an individual. But then the Mental Health First Aid course empowers them with how to approach the question, how to discuss it in a non-judgmental way and how to support them to get the professional help if they need it. Um, you would be amazed at the diversity of views I found in employers. Um, I had... Uh, one employer who said he had no role to play in the mental health of his workforce. I had another who said it's not a problem for him because he doesn't employ mentally ill people. Um, I had another employer say, well, what's the problem? I've got an EAP program. If they've got a problem, they'll go to EAP. Um, the fact is, workers trust an EAP program for physical injury. They do not trust EAP for mental injury. They still think that their bosses are getting the numbers of who's going to see the psychologist. So or that they'll work it back through and that's that whole stigma and discrimination. Mm. So more more to the point is how do we help, how do we 
to help those small employers, those 20 people, employees or less, the mum and dad companies, where it's the people running the company who probably need the help the most. How do we help them with a template for a, a policy? How do we educate them on how to make that policy implemented into the workplace? How do we do audits of the workplace where you go in the brew room and it says, harden up princess, maybe we'll take that poster down. Mm. Um, how, how do you have you know a toolbox chat every Monday and you talk about mental health and wellbeing? So how do we use a carrot and encourage employers to look at the mental health and wellbeing of the workforce rather than a stick and send them to jail? Yeah, and you're right. I mean, uh, small business. Uh, I mean, they've they've got so many pressures and a lot of things, and so the more tools and stuff you can provide them with, and, and that makes sense substance yeah. for them. And it's interesting those responses that you heard from uh, those employers. I mean, that just shows the stigma Absolutely. is still very real. Uh, it's out there, and, yeah. and not everyone is a believer. Absolutely. Uh, and and they're all waiting for a challenge, or some of them were waiting for a challenge to happen before it was a problem. Yeah, absolutely. They wait for the crisis. Which is what you were alluding to earlier, yeah. which is, you know, what was it with the ambulance? Yeah. Well, it's the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, so when the, yeah. the lemmings fall off, then you treat them. Yeah. My analogy is, why don't we build a fence at the top of the cliff and stop yeah. them falling off? And what a great analogy. Yeah. So uh, so workplace and obviously play a really important role. Um, the community play a really important role. The if we look and go to, um, to to culture and leadership, so you've identified that it's probably culture needs to change, and culture is obviously starts with leadership. How do we how do we do that? How do we get out there and, and reach leaders? Because it's not only leaders in businesses, but we're looking at communities. You're looking even in frontline uh, with with people on the you know down in the frontline working in the in the job, not just the people on the hierarchy of the of the org chart yep. in an organization. Um, we're talking about leaders in schools. How, how do we do this? And, and obviously, it's not an overnight fix. This is going to take some time. Absolutely. But what, what, what do you think is, is really key parts to, to getting this leadership by? Yeah. So I think it's very, it's incremental. Um, I take it as my, a personal responsibility. Um, I have actively gone out and spoken to CEO groups, breakfasts, uh, tech organisations. Anywhere where leaders gather, I, I willingly and even ask to talk to, to leaders. Um, but how, how do we convince leaders at the very, very top, our nation's leaders, mm. our state's leaders, to demonstrate positive mental health and wellbeing traits? And I, and I, you know, I can't go too far into talking about that. Mm. But if, if we had that good, strong leadership from the top, where they demonstrated, maybe in question time, mm. what good mental health and wellbeing practices are, uh, and in the media, then that would be a positive sign. Now, there's great examples. Um, the UK is a good one, where uh, up until seven years ago, you could not be in their parliament if you had any history of mental illness. And then one day a member of parliament stood up and said, I know you're probably gonna sack me, but I'm, I'm experiencing quite severe depression. Um, and before they had a chance, another one stood up and said, yeah, well, me too, and then me too. That was the start of the Me Too movement. Is that, um, is that right? Absolutely. And they changed the law uh, within a week. Wow. And then they established a parliamentary mental health and well-being group, which was initially covert because they were worried about what their constituents would think. Um, the media exposed the covert group. Um, and I spoke to six parliamentarians over there who had recently gone through an election. They all thought that they were either going to be uh, bumped or um, uh, smaller, elected under a smaller margin as a result of being exposed as part of this. Um, but when they went out to their constituents, their constituents said, thank you. Thank you for you admitting. Because you came out, I've come out. I've gone and seen my GP. All of them got re-elected on a higher majority. Wow. But that's seven years ago? Yeah. That, that, that's in the House of Commons. Yeah. Wow. Couldn't, couldn't be a JP, couldn't be in Parliament, anything with mental health history. So we've, we've got to, um, we, we, you know, as part of breaking down the stigma is, um, is people do recover from mental illness and people fluctuate every day. Yeah. You know, some days you wake up feeling great, other days, yeah, it's not so great. And that's, and that's probably impacted by determinants. If you've, you've got a bad relationship, if you haven't got a job, and yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm circling right back here, is 
If those social determinants aren't strong, then your mental health and wellbeing will be weak and you will fluctuate. The inequalities. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you want a good, strong, productive society and you want to grow your mental wealth, invest in the social determinants and invest in the community. And, and um, my last slide was, was stay calm and look after yourself. If you, if you can't look after your own mental health and wellbeing, you're of no value to anyone else. Yeah, and, that, and that's a really good point because, you know, with, with the, of the workforce we do have out there that are doing their best to keep up and, and, uh, and try and help yeah. uh, people with mental ill health, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite common that they're actually um, not looking after themselves yeah. because they're so busy and they're, they're trying to do the best they can with what they've got with their resources. Exactly. So, um, so, so that's a really good point mm. is for the people uh, working in mental health or in health in general. Exactly. To make sure they're looking after their own, their own health. So There's we, a recent workplace survey where they found that one in five workers have taken time off sick leave during the year for mental issues, um, but didn't declare it as such. So mm. said that they had a cold or something. Um, and only 52% of the workforce believe that their workplace is mentally healthy or safe. Mm. We've got to address that. Yeah. And that is that is about culture and leadership and, and leaders standing up and saying, I want this to be a safe place. Tell me what you need to make this a safe place. Mm. And, and I, I, I will lead this and, and I will invest in it, um, but you, you've got to come along. It's got to be what makes you feel good. Yeah, absolutely. If we if we go back, so, so when you're in defence, um, how did you feel? Uh, did you feel that it was adequately? Was it was the was there any back then when you were when you were working in defence? Did you feel like mental health was the stigma was was just I mean it was very real? And do you feel like it's gotten better now? Do you know if it has improved since back in the in the defence side? So I've been out of it for 12 years. My impression is it has improved, that there, there is greater awareness and there are greater initiatives to it. Um, I, I would say when I was in it, it was atrocious. Yeah. Um, I've always said after I did the mental health first aid course, I wish I'd done that 30 years ago because there's a whole lot of soldiers mm. and my own two sons who I would have raised and treated differently if I'd known about mental health and what the difference between anxiety and depression were and what the signs and symptoms were. Um, but the, the biggest thing in defence was if you mentioned your mental health and well-being in defence, first thing they take off you is your gun mm. and you can no longer be part of the team. Yeah. You can't go to the range and train. You can't carry your weapon on the ground. Um, you know, the essence of being a soldier is a weaponry. Mm. And if you don't have a weapon, then you can't be part of the team. So that was that ultimate stigma. Yeah. And... When I was in, it was the hardened up princess, get over it, um, you know, build a bridge and get over it. Um, I hope and I, I think it has changed significantly. Um, our real challenge from a veterans community is transition from service to civilian life. Yeah, because transition. You are in the service, you are forced to be part of a family. In fact, if you're not a good family member, that you can't be in it. Mm. Um, but when you leave the service, you lose that family and you have to work out. So when I got out, my first doctor's appointment, I came out and they said, have you got your Medicare card? And I thought, ah, never had to do one of those. Mm. So I didn't have a Medicare. So we've got to better manage our young veterans out. And, and when you look at the suicide rates amongst veterans, the highest is those that transition out at a young age and early, so have either been had to be um, uh, terminated. terminated because of medical or disciplinary or performance. Naturally, they're young men who were elevated to the highest in society, and then they're suddenly mm. thrown out. And so we've got to learn to transition veterans out better. And at our frontline mental health conference we had the other week, we, we I heard a gentleman talk about that very that very theme, saying a lot of the a lot of people, a lot of males going into, uh, and I'm aware there's females as well, but males going into the defence uh, are longing for that alpha status. The, the alpha males that are going there, they're, they're looking for a sense of belonging. 
And, and they get that when they go in there. And then all of a sudden, you know, when they leave, that identity is gone. Yeah. And, uh, and the very, uh, the structure, uh, when they're trying to transition to civilian life, yeah. all of a sudden they've lost that mateship. Absolutely. They've, they've lost that camaraderie. They've lost the purpose. And so they're, they're really searching for, mm. well, who am I now yeah. without that? Yeah. Well, it's institutionalised. I've trained recruits and officers, cadet, officer cadets. The first part of the training is to de-individualise them, mm. make them part of the collective, and that's through collective punishment, mm. collective tasking, so that they don't think of themselves as an individual. They think of themselves as part of a team and that they don't function unless the team is there. Well, when you separate them, there's no team. Mm. And um, we also, I, I think we're terrible at looking after the families of veterans when we mm. transition them out. Um, personally, I think the problem is we have a Defence Department and a Veterans Affairs Department. Other countries, the two are melded, mm. and so yeah, there's a, a smooth transition. Um, but we've got to learn to look after our veterans and their families far better. I also feel, um, and I think there's a perception might be global, but certainly in, in South Australia, maybe world and in, in the state, a nation, that when you say the word veteran, people think PTSD. Mm. And they think every veteran is broken. Um, less than 10% of veterans experience some form of PTSD. In fact, veterans are quite good workers. And they have that discipline, they have skills. Um, they're actually a good workforce, mm. but there's this perception out there, mm -mm. Yeah. Veteran, broken, and don't want the liability. And there's, to be fair, there's probably a degree of that portion that's still undiagnosed as well. Absolutely. It? So, but, but you're right. I mean, and that comes to stigma around employing people with previous you know, mm. mental ill health or, um, you know, that's it's, it's trying to reduce the stigma around that's that right. is another key thing. Yeah. Uh, with, with regards to veteran or with regards to the defence or, uh, or first responders and emergency workers, how important do you believe it is on the front end? So when they come in with with the opportunity there, with, with the academy, with the induction process, to really talk about it and open them up to the, the symptoms and possible things that they might be seeing and or experiencing throughout their service. Absolutely. Yeah. I think every soldier and every first responder, maybe not ambulance because they're clinically trained, mm. but non-clinical, uh, should be doing the mental health first aid course. And I'm an advocate of that because I've done it. Yeah. Um, but it should be part of the vernacular. It mm. should be openly talked about. Just as you talk about, don't, you know, these are the things you've got to do to not break your leg. You know, um, in, in the military, when you're doing running, you're taught how not to get shin splints and how to treat you, yourself and how to bathe in salt so you don't get um, uh, um, cramps. Um, but we don't talk anything about how do you address, how do you build your resilience up. Um, the only I'd go back to is, is that 75% before 24. Mm. Most people who are going to be mentally unwell in terms of joining the military or first responders have already probably got mm. mental illness. So if we weren't investing that pre-11 yeah. years old, this, it always goes back to those early years. If you haven't invested up front, you're going to lose that wealth later and that productivity. So upfront investment by a nation is far more important. And it's really about ingraining and instilling it throughout every facet yep. as they go through life. Yep. So that no matter where you go, community organisation, uh, casual work, schoolyard, yeah. uh, sporting organisations, uh, at home, yep. that it's a, part of, it's a part of life. Absolutely. And, and don't allow the stigma and discrimination. Now, and, and it's as I said today is um, we, we converted generations of Australians to putting on suntan lotion. And, you know, the bronze Aussie was the way. We, we've converted uh, generations to put your seatbelt on as soon as they get in the car. How do, we, how do we create that in the mental health and wellbeing space? Yeah. How do we get families sitting at the dinner table at night talking about mental health and wellbeing? Um, you know, how do we get ads on TVs and TV stories talking about how to have better resilience and mental health? How do we identify the signs and symptoms of anxiety and depression? How to have a non-judgmental discussion? Um, 
an interesting anecdote is when they asked, when I did my mental health first aid course, um, it was when I first started and they said, would you make a short video for our website on Are You OK Day? And I said, well, there's a challenge there because I'm not a great fan of Are You OK Day? And they said, yeah, yeah, we know only one day of the year. Um, so it should be every day, we know that, but this is... The... I said, no, it's not that at all. I said, I am scared. What happens when I ask, are you okay? And they say, actually, mate, I'm feeling terrible. Mm. I've had thoughts of taking my own life. Can you help me, please? Mm. And I didn't know what to do. So uh, the Mental Health First Aid course taught, taught me how to ask the question yeah. and then how to have the discussion and the conversation and then what supports to, to seek to help them. Um, you know, wouldn't it be great to have a TV show where they do an ad that says, this is how you ask the question, this is what non-judgmental conversation is that mm. flows, and this is the likely avenues of support you can seek. And again, getting the networks to pay for that. Exactly, exactly. Because they're going to get the benefit of it later on. Yeah. You know, we'll have better people in business, we'll have mm. you know, more productive people as a nation. With with regards to the emergency services and, and the defence, with cultivating a mentally healthy workplace in those instances, what would you say to people to say, well, we're going to have no one left in the field? I mean, the cost would be astronomical with people going on leave, with people identifying. I mean, what would you say to that? Uh, well, you know, the analogy is that if you worried so much about people's physical health, you'd have everyone worried about first aid and treating people with broken legs and no one doing the job. No, it's got to, it's part of life. Yeah, It's just part of life. It should be part of the normal conversation. It should be just part of doing business, mm. is mental health, wellbeing, resilience, positive psychology. Um, it, it shouldn't be seen as a unique thing for a unique group of people. Yeah. It's each and every one of us either as a person experiencing it or caring for someone who is. Mm. Um, and it's just part of life. Yep. So let's just crack on with it and Talk not it. exaggerate mm. it and make it out to be more than what it is. Mm. That's my view. Chris, uh, as, we, uh, as we finish off the, the episode, do you, uh, who's been a source of inspiration to you? Mm. Uh, <coughs> um, who's been a source of inspiration? Professionally or personally, is there, is there something that's driven you? I mean, you're, you're a guy that's clearly passionate yeah. about what you're doing and, and the role that you're playing. And the stuff that you're doing is really proactive, and I mean, it's it is inspiring. Yeah. Has a is there been a, a couple of people that have been a source of inspiration for you, or is there? That... Um, uh, at the early stage of setting up the commission, I was strongly advised to have people with lived experience in my employee, um, and I did employ um, uh, probably more than seventy percent of my staff have said that they've got lived experience. Um, they're the inspiration because they're the ones that have gone through the hardship of this mm. and um, are so committed to fixing it that they talk about it, that they help you out, um, that they, they are so passionate and driven that they realise that the benefits of this for our whole nation are so great. Um, and in the face of, of everything they've had to deal with, they still keep going. Mm. And that's my inspiration, people with lived experience. And, and when you go out in the country... And, and you visit people, dairy farmers, struggling through a drought mm. and dealing with all the mental health issues they've got out there, you say, yeah, life's pretty good for me. Mm. But how do I help them and, and make it better for them? And that, that's what keeps you going. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's been very insightful. Do you have any last uh, advice, any sort of last few words you want to... As I started the day, don't wait for the crisis to happen. Mm. Promotion, prevention, early intervention. Let's Let's be a richer country mentally by investing early. Well, we appreciate your time. Uh, very, very wise advice. And thank you for your service and defence, but then also your commitment to mental health in South Australia and, uh, and improving uh, the awareness uh, and prevention of mental health and making it uh, a key part uh, and, and a good initiative and the strategy that you're rolling out. I'm looking forward to hearing more about you know, closer to 2022, uh, how, how it's going and yeah, yeah. implementation and, and how that's measuring up and to, mm. to your expectations. So uh, thank you again and thanks for your time and thanks, we appreciate Sam. your time. Thanks for what you're doing. It's great. No worries. Get the message out. Thanks. Cheers. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? 
Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.